Hello, everybody, and welcome to another beautiful episode of The Word on the Hill. We are the Lanky Guys. My, My name, name is, is Scott Powell. Is Father Peter Do you realize how many people are listening to this? You, you repeat that many weeks and remind us how intimidating this should be that there's so many people listening, including <laughs> priests and bishops and sisters and mother superiors. And just today when you said it, it sunk in for me. And now I'm super stressed out. <laughs> <laughs> it's been almost yeah, it's been over five or four years and now for the first time I'm stressed. Oh no, really? Yeah. I could hear it's it. It's because I, I spoke to uh, mother one of the mother superiors of a major order this morning and she said she listened and now I'm stressed about it. Dude, we just, gotta we gotta perform here. Lift it. No, we're just lifting up the church. We're just being ourselves. Like, dude, this is <laughs> the thing is is the more like important people I know are listening, the more I like relax and then say really absurd things. Cause dude, think about this for a second. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, well, it does. That is che- so antithetical to my worldview. Check this out. Okay, so like as a you religious me out. As as a religious, what happens is sisters, they go to mass every day. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Priests, they go to mass every day. Which means that um, when you when you bring a little bit of something different, a little flavor that's unexpected, yeah, it uh, it's just wonderful. Of course, I you know I think they all fast forward past the beginning, like the Baselli's. They but literally that's okay. told me that they did. I know they told me too. That's okay. Well, you know what? That's well, a great they, opportunity. Why did they fast forward? I told them they have no idea what I edit out of the beginning to get it as short as it is. <laughs> but all that being said, it is the we are closing. Sunday in Advent. Dude, we're closing in on Christmas. Dude, you are not kidding me. This has been a fast advent for me. I don't know about your situation over there, but I feel like things have really flown along. Oh, man. Which sounds like such a cliche thing to say. It's been such a fast advent. (laughs) It really has been, though. And so this is, we are already in the fourth Sunday of Advent. Um, You know, okay, here's what's kind of fun. I think this is fun. I don't know if you think it's fun. And I get that Advent's a penitential season. I get it. But we have, right now, Christmas. Let me see if I can articulate this correctly. Christmas is as far away from the fourth Sunday of Advent as it could possibly be. Because it's next which, Sunday. Because it's all the way away. It's seven days later, which makes this the longest Advent that we could possibly have. Is it? Yeah, exactly. Which I kind of like because I like the lead up and the preparation and all that stuff. Because it's kind of a bummer when you hit the fourth Sunday of Advent and like Christmas is like two days later. I know. Like, well, that's it. But this way, we actually have a whole another week. I don't know. I don't know if that makes any sense. I kind of like it, though. Yeah. Because it extends all of the anticipation. and It's exciting. One of my very favorite things about Advent is Advent music. Like, <laughs> dude, I Have you ever searched for that on Pandora? Advent music? Yeah, because I have. <laughs> in my guilt of playing Christmas music before <laughs> Christmas. And? It no, it's, doesn't work out very well. Oh, man. Dude, but Lo, How a Rose oh, or Blue. Come all come Emmanuel. There's 10,000 people listening to this. <laughs> Scott, Scott, relax. Don't think of them. Dude, yeah. just, just look at me. Just look at me. And <laughs> it's just you and I in a basement doing a podcast. <laughs> that sounds creepy. <laughs> it is the fourth Sunday of Advent. And our first reading is coming from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 14. Okay, then our responsorial psalm mm. is Psalm 24. The King of Glory comes, the nation rejoices. Okay. 24, 1 to 2, 3 to 4, 5 to 6. Then seven C comma ten B, which is <laughs> that is a splice if there ever has yeah, been dude. one. And let, let's take it from like the second half of seven and <laughs> add it to ten, man. This is like only half of ten though. Yeah, ten. Not B. even a half. 
Yeah, dude, it's just like, let's take a couple of words. <laughs> dude, oh my gosh, that would be hilarious if you made a reading and you did- from each of seven uh, verses. Verses, and then yeah. you put the thing up top. Oh my goodness. I love that. Let's do that. For the next uh, liturgical calendar. <laughs> Our second reading is coming from the book of Romans, chapter one, the very beginning of Romans, chapter one, verse uh, verses one through seven. Kairi Shalom. And then our gospel is from Matthew 1, 18 to 24. What did you just say? Um, Kairi Lord, Lord, peace? Um, oh, yeah. What is the Greek um, for greeting? It's, um, it's. Oh, Karis. Karis Shalom. It's. I see what you did. We'll talk about that. That's yeah. You that's actually very insightful, Father Peter. Hey, bro, man. This I is just a, didn't know what you were saying. Sometimes you just say stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really funny, and I usually catch it after the podcast, and I laugh later on. Well, dude, that's but the during the part. podcast, I just gotta plow through sometimes. Well, because because it's hard. What happens is that um, I'm poetic, and so the 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 really the the profundity of my words is in the space in between. Mm. And so yes, so so you really sometimes you just kind of have to like let my poetic language marinate. And then, like the next marinade. thing, you... marinade, 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 marionette, marionette, <laughs> <laughs> Mickey's right. midget marionettes. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, Isaiah. Um, oh my gosh. Okay, here's what I have. I have a confession to make, <laughs> okay. and I did this on purpose because I, 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 I don't think it was out of laziness, and I mean that. Okay. I did. St- you asked you you in your ways. You asked me if I had anything to say today. Uh huh. And I said, "Have I ever not had something to say?" I know I you do... like you like almost scolded me. I did. I shouldn't have. I thought it would be funnier, and it just came out mean. <laughs> it, well, it, I just, I just, yeah. So you didn't pray that it would be funny this week, like last week. I did That's pray. You prayed that we would be funny, but last week you just prayed specifically that <laughs> Scott could be funnier. <laughs> um, I I have things to say about each of these readings. But I got to be honest, I don't understand quite how they fit together. And I, I don't mean that in That's like, I've, 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 I've drilled over these and I've kept pondering them and wrestling. I kind of at one point stopped and I'm like, let's let's see what happens if we just talk about the context for each and try to figure out how they fit. I mean, there, there's a very surface level connection that I can see, but I know that the church um, is asking something deeper of us, that there's something beneath just, you know, because there's some words that overlap and there's a prophecy that is that is fulfilled in Jesus. There's something deeper here. And I, I want to see if we can plumb what it is. And I don't know what that is. Okay. So Isaiah 7 has a very interesting... Isaiah, man, Isaiah is a weird book. And we've talked about this a little bit just because yeah. it spans so much time. It It's not even just the fact that it spans such a broad period of time. It jumps and it flashbacks and it flashes forward, and then it flashes sideways. I mean, it's it's all over the board. Literally, the first I kind of had to go back and just read the beginning. The first lines of Isaiah is actually reflecting on Jerusalem being destroyed, which in the narrative of Isaiah it actually won't happen for for a very very long time. But we it's, start there and then we go back and then we go forward and then we go back again. So it's very confusing. But in the but this is the thing is that I mean that's like it's like final causality. It's first in intention, last in execution. Well, that's true. Yeah, that that's so, definitely how it does. So, it. so it's, which which all is finds its metaphorical fulfillment in Jesus Christ crucified, of course. Of but, course. But th- this is the thing is is that uh, Isaiah is a little bit like the Wonka Vader. <laughs> is that from Willy Wonka? Yeah, yeah, Wonka Vader. Glass elevator goes up ways, down ways, sideways, all over place. Like you could just you just travel. So you're going all over the place. But I have to say that when we it's chapter seven, is, is, were you about to get into the details, or you got gonna, a little more context? Well, I a little bit more context. And the only other context I was going to give. So Isaiah, 
there are so many oracles and prophecies surrounding Isaiah. There's very little narrative. But in the middle, well, not quite in the middle, but two, I actually have a, an, an out, a worksheet that we developed when I taught at the biblical school, which Ooh, kind of cool. lays out the whole thing. I'm showing Father Peter this. But there's these two pillars that are the, they're called the two royal narratives. Okay. So um, kind of in, in one third of the way in and then three fourths of the way in to the book, there are these two royal narratives, narratives about two kings that, that reflect each other in very profound ways. One is King Ahaz, who we'll talk about today. And the second is about King Hezekiah, who I believe is Ahaz's son. But uh, both of them are, there's all these similarities between the two. Ahab is, Ahaz is lousy. Hezekiah is better, although not perfect. Both of these kings are basically facing existential threats okay. from nations who are attacking. In the case of Ahaz this week, it's Israel, which Israel that can be confusing. Do you remember who Israel refers to in the in the Old Testament usually? Isn't in the books the, of the, the prophets the, specifically. Israel refers to the whole people of God. No? Not in the prophets. And that's where it gets so confusing if you're yeah. reading through this and you're like, "Wait, Israel is not Judah? The, Jerusalem is being attacked by Israel? That doesn't make any sense." Unless you remember that it, for most of the prophets, Israel is shorthand for the northern kingdom. Oh. So the northern kingdom, as frustrating as that is, tends to go by the title of Israel. Um, the southern Versus kingdom Judah. is Judah, right? So it gets confusing. Earlier in the Bible, it's not as confusing. But if you go back and read through, like Isaiah, for example, you're like, wait, why is Jerusalem being attacked by Israel? Israel is attacking itself? Well, yeah, but it's two, you know, the two kingdoms that have split. So uh, right now, there's a, there's a lot of juice to that. Even as we're talking, I'm there like, is. Yeah, so I there just really, to, really I is. Just, there's a lot to meditate upon what that means. There is. Yeah, there is. But be that as it may, I'm putting a, a pin in that. Uh, they're a threat to. They're at war with each other, okay. and they are threatening Jerusalem. So Ahaz is trying to figure out what to do about that. And instead of embracing God's help and turning to God to be their salvation. He turns to a foreign power, which is what the kings in the Old Testament tend to do, which is always a bad idea. They don't trust in God, and they trust in things of this world that seem safe. So he puts his trust in a little old nation called Assyria. Are and you we, serious? I am Assyrius. Ah. <laughs> and how it ends is that Jerusalem is saved from the northern kingdom, but we know that a much much worse enemy, Assyria, is coming very soon. And then later on, to jump forward, we're not going to talk about this, but in a you know in chapter thirty six through thirty nine, Ahaz's son Hezekiah is facing another problem. Now Assyria is threatening Israel. Hezekiah puts his trust in God. God. But to both of these kings, God basically begins these narratives by saying, you are in danger, fear not. I am your protection. Fear not. They both begin with the, the message of fear not. Ahaz says, well, I'm not really afraid because I've got Assyria to put my trust in. Yeah. Hezekiah says, okay, I'll put my trust in you. And we've talked a little bit about the story of Hezekiah. Um, Assyria comes in and they're battering down the doors and things are getting really bad. Hezekiah embodies the threat of Israel in his body. He gets sick. As the war gets worse, he gets sicker. And then God miraculously intervenes. Assyria pulls out. He gets better. But then the story ends with him saying, well, I don't want to be in that situation again. So I'm going to reach out to this new upstart nation that seems very powerful and maybe they can be our ally. And of course, it's Babylon who will then come in and finish the job. So in both of these stories, there's two kings in threat. God says to both of them, fear not. One of them puts his faith in a foreign power. The other puts his faith in God 
but then later on puts his faith in a foreign power. <laughs> and both of them th- for, face a much more severe threat later. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so it's, it's set up in these ways. So that's kind of where we get our reading this week. So the Lord says to Ahaz, and Ahaz is this king who is in danger. He realizes he can't fight this battle. He's not going to win. The odds are stacked against him. And the Lord says, ask for a sign from the Lord your God. Be it, let it be as deep as the netherworld or as high as the sky. But Ahaz answered, I will not ask. I will not tempt the Lord. Okay, see, this is there's so many there's so many issues going on here. Yeah, there's a lot of ish. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. So, I mean, okay, a sign is really meant to inspire faith, right? Can be. Yeah. So, so, so he's saying, ask, ask for a sign. God is saying that. Let's God just is be asking, carefully to note that God is through the through Isaiah the prophet. Here's the the simple moral of the story. If God tells you to ask for a sign, you ask for a you sign. ask for a sign. Sorry, continue. Yeah, but but then a sign. What does a uh, sign demand? That? I just keep remembering. Remember that scene from Ghostbusters. <laughs> if, if somebody <laughs> asks you if you're a God, you say yes, yes. <laughs> which is not good advice. But yeah, yeah, but it's very funny. There's our token '80s reference of the day. That, yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, like, what is a sign meant to do? It's meant to—I mean, ultimately, it's uh, a sign in in its uh, semantic thing is to point to something else. Yes. So you're sa- so the Lord God is saying, you ask for anything you want. Well, kind and of. Any Maybe. you ask for a sign that points to me, and I'll show you that I'm real. But there's is what a, is what God is saying. Yes, but there's a specificity to what that sign is supposed to be, because again, to put it in context. I mean, this is such a profound act of mercy on God's part because you have a lousy king who is not putting his trust in God, which is what the king of Israel is supposed to do. And God says, you are making bad decisions. You are being a lousy king. I've told you I'm going to save you. You don't believe me that I'm going to protect you. So ask me for a sign to show you that I will protect you. So it's not just a sign about anything. He's saying, I want to save this nation. I will protect you against Israel. Ask me for a sign to show you that. Mm. And then his in this false act of piety, he's like, no, no, I will not ask the Lord for a sign. I don't want to tempt the Lord because I'm too holy for that. And God, God's response is the best. And Isaiah says it basically through God speaking through Isaiah says, listen, O house of David, is it not enough for you to weary the people? You must also weary God. God's like, oh, for Pete's sake, you, really? You're not going to weary me with your, I told you to ask for a sign. You ask for a sign. He gives this pious answer, this falsely pious answer, basically saying, no, I'm not going to trust in God, and I'm going to give what looks like a pious answer to justify my not trusting in God. Right. Which is just a, it's a fascinating scene. I mean, it's, it's pretty wild. I I, I mean, I have to say, you see this in vocations work, like, Hmm. Uh, like people will say, God, just tell me what I'm supposed to do. But in fact, I actually really felt like God had told me what to do. And I'll tell you, there's a yeah. pinch. There's a pinch to oh, God actually giving you real direction versus mm. versus like no, work it out and engage your freedom. There's because there's two different modes. The Lord knows yeah. us and says sometimes you have to actually figure it out and labor and puzzle it together. And sometimes the Lord's like, go here, and you're like, ah. And at first it's sweet. I don't want that sign. Yeah. At first it's sweet, but then it goes, like like the words, it, it, but it goes bitter in your stomach. Yeah. So the, the end of this, and again, God even showing extra mercy is like, okay, I'm going to give you a sign anyway, even though you don't want it from me. Partially because you are the king and what happens to you matters because the people see you and how I interact with you. 
it's not just for your sake, Ahaz. You're you're being kind of a jerk, right. but it's for the sake of the people who right. you represent and lead. They need to see this. Right. So he says the sign is going to be this: a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and his name will be Emmanuel. They shall call him Emmanuel. Dude, I, I this is what I struggle with. Yep. Why? Like, this is hard. what is the sign that the like? What did the people need? Because because is it because they were going to lose the war? And no. like so, so God is actually trying to inspire the people, but now we get such a, a bigger response to Ahaz. It's like it's like let's announce the incarnation from this response. I mean, that's what that's what I am processing yes and, through. Yes and no. I mean, ultimately, now let's make no mistake. Ultimately, at the end of the day, this is a prophecy about Jesus, right? But oftentimes, with prophecies, there are proximate and there there's proximate and fulfillments and remote fulfillments, right? Or ultimate fulfillment, tell tellius fulfillments, right? Jesus is the ultimate; he's the end fulfillment of this. But you know, if you ask a, a Jew or a rabbi who studies the scriptures, what is this prophecy about? They would give you a very different answer. And the the part of the difficulty, and this is not to to. Uh, Denigrate? Denigrate the scriptures, I suppose. The word that shows up for virgin Betula. can also mean a young woman. Right. It doesn't have to be virgin. It doesn't have to be the, the specific meaning that we apply to it. It can, and this is a, an appropriate translation, but it doesn't have to. It could be a young woman that's going to conceive and bear a child. So if you were to ask a rabbi or something, what does this mean? Their answer they would give is, no, this is a prophecy about Hezekiah. This is actually a prophecy about Ahaz's son, because number one, frankly, and this is sort of my spin on it, you're not going to be destroyed by Israel. You are going to survive. In fact, you're going to have a son who's going to rise to be a great king, and I'm going to bless him. Mm. Your wife is going to have a child. And not only will you survive this, but this child of yours is going to be my representative in a better way than you were. Mm. And he's going to hear my voice and heed my voice. And because of his faith in me, Israel will be protected. Now, Hezekiah makes bad decisions in the end also. But in a certain level, there is approximate fulfillment that God is faithful. There is a son from Ahaz who is a jerk, and the son is actually faithful and does give witness to the Lord and does bring the kingdom up. And so, you know, for many of our faithful Jewish friends, they would say, no, that's what God is saying. And they're right. That's true. But we, with the eyes of Christian faith, can say, yeah, but that's not all. Well, and that's, that's not the end of it. Because if that's the end, I mean, Hezekiah did good things. But ultimately, he was, a, he was a schmuck at the end, too. It points to something far greater than that. But yeah. it's, it is a both and. Well, and, that, and that's, I, I mean, it's precisely moments like this where rich language, uh, non- Yes, n- yes. Non, like, uh, uber technical precise language actually allows us to see both yeah. the proximate and the remote. I mean, the yeah, yeah. proximate and remote fulfillment. Yeah, it's a tapestry, this, it, this, these prophecies. Yeah, I mean, so I can see I can see how you are pulling on that particular string. Uh, somebody, who, somebody pointed out something about that, the pulling thread of the tapestry, and they said we stole it from him, and I forget who it was. Oh, it was probably Tom Smith. No, it was Josh Watson. Josh Watson? Yeah. He said we stole it from him? He said something to that effect. Uh, anyway. What's up, Josh? Neither here nor there. Okay, so that's where we are. That takes us to Psalm 24. Okay. okay. And again, I'm not I'm I'm not ready to make all the connection. I mean, again, there's there's the connection of okay, he's well oh, oh by the way, sorry, I forgot the most important part. Name of Emmanuel. Yeah, he's gonna be named Emmanuel, which of course that's repeated then in the gospels. That's what's told to Mary. We we know all that, but what does Emmanuel mean? Uh, it means a short black actor from the eighties. Emmanuel Lewis, <laughs> Webster, everyone. <laughs> come, that was pretty good. Come on, know. dude. That's, that's like, pretty good. Okay. That's the, right, that's right, the only right, Emmanuel right. that I really know. All right, but what does the word mean? 
God is with us. God is with us. Now, what is the context here? We're at war. There's danger. God is saying, I will protect you. I am with you. Ahaz won't believe that. He's like, no, we have to put our trust somewhere oh, else. Hold on, I the just... sign is, I am with you. That is the proximate sign. It's the sign in that context for that moment. That's what the people need to know. Because they're like, well, we're getting attacked. Where is God? Well, I'm hold here. on. Hold on. This is this is actually wild. I've never seen this. Okay. Um, wh- what gave, uh, what gave uh, Jerusalem, Israel, all of Judah together victory in the Old Testament? God. The Ark of the New Covenant. Okay. The Ark of the Old Covenant. I mean, the, uh, sorry, the Ark, the Ark of, of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's some new and old. Yeah. I mean, we're just, we're, well, we're just, we're just um, scribes trained in the kingdom bringing out the new and the old. Mm, uh, well so, done. Yeah, so, yeah, well so this is the thing is the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the New Covenant is Mary, the yes. virgin with a son. Oh, I see where you're, I see where you're so going. So Emmanuel, there. God is with us. This is saying okay. it's like the ark is going to be given for the battle. Mm, that's good. That's really good because this has to be applied to battle. It has to be applied that's to battle. That's the most appropriate context. That's, yeah. And so, ooh, that's good. So, so what, what is the ancient battle but between Adam and, Adam and uh, I mean, Adam, Eve is the, the ancient dragon. And the evil the, one, yeah. yeah the so ultimate battle. Because there is a proximate battle. There God is a proximate really saying, battle. I want to protect you here and now. But that's not the ultimate battle. The no. ultimate battle. Yeah. That's good. That's a really, there's so many layers to this. This actually, that, I, I feel happy. I, this is cool. I feel like we could finish the podcast now. Good night, everybody. Every Thanks day. for coming. All right. Our responsorial psalm, Psalm 24, the king of glory comes the nation rejoices. I'm not sure what to do with this. So the context for Psalm 24. <laughs> dance, dude. Dance. I will try. Uh, let the Lord enter. He is the king of glory. Well, no, I guess I do. There, there's two things to say about this. One of the contexts, one of the things that this is about, at least for the Christian tradition, um, where does it say? Uh, who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? The one whose hands are stainless, whose heart is clean. Remember, Isaiah, in the chapter just before this, found himself in God's throne room. And he said, I'm not worthy to be here because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Yeah. And then God touches the burning coal, right? This sign of a little bit of suffering. Um, the fathers all saw that as an imagery of the Eucharist, right? Receiving this burning coal. But this talks about whose hands are sinless, whose heart is clean. There's a, there's a, there's a, well, just who, who is that? Well, it's Isaiah. Well, it's Jesus. No. Who Mary. is it? I don't it's, know. It's Mary. Mary. It's the Ark of the New Covenant. Yes. She stands in the holy place with a sinless heart who desires not what is vain. And the, let the Lord enter. Yeah. The, he is the King of glory. This is actually incarnational. This is Absolutely. incarnational expression Absolutely. of God is going to be with us. The, the expression there. Why? And the, the why is actually answered. I jumped to the second stanza. The why is answered in the first one, which is because, well, the whole earth is the Lord. The Lord's are the earth in its fullness and the world and those who dwell in it. For he founded it upon the seas, established it upon the rivers. This is really Psalm 24 is the answer to why Ahaz should believe God's word. Mm. How do I know that you're going to save us against these foreign powers? Well, because the whole earth is the Lord's and all of the people in it are the Lord's. So of course he can save you. Of course he can move there. It's not even that he can just give you a greater military strength to defeat them. He can actually move the hearts of your enemies to not destroy you. It's not just make us strong so we can beat everybody. It's Lord change their hearts. Well, what is reward? It says it says he, uh, he will receive a blessing from the Lord, a reward from God his Savior. Yeah. What is what is sal- the salvation that we find in Romans? What is salvation? Jesus. 
No, incorporation I, into the family I ask of you God. rhetorical questions. You don't ask them of me. <laughs> it's, Sorry. it's incorporation. I get nervous <laughs> when you ask me questions. I know, but me too when you do it to Sorry. me. But it's incorporation of the family of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the, what, the reward yeah. from God yeah. is it's not just the defeat of the enemies, but it says, no, they're going to join you. They're going to say, oh my gosh, hold on. This is from where salvation, this is flows from the temple. Which is particularly ironic for the first reading because who is the enemy du jour? It's their family. It's Israel. It's the northern, it's 10 other tribes of Israel. So it's again, infighting, yeah. The pr- problem should not be how do we defeat our brothers and sisters? Ooh. It should be how do we reunite ourselves with our family? This is not okay. Right. I mean, Assyria is one thing, Babylon is one thing. That is the incoming of the nations, that is what they're supposed to be doing. But in the case of Ahaz, it's actually your brothers. So, I mean, I think wow. your point is really an important one within the context of what's going on there. Wow. Which is actually a great lead into Romans, which you've already mentioned, which is our second reading, which is Paul's opening here. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus, King Jesus. By the way, you know, I, and it, it's, it goes without saying, and I, I guess it's also, we just take it for granted. It doesn't go without saying because I'm going to say it. But we take it for granted, you know, Christ Jesus. And it, it's, it's just a good thing to remind ourselves of. Do you remember what Christ means? King. Yeah, it literally means king. So, I mean, we have a first reading that's talking about bad kings and other kings who are coming who are so-so kings. And it's all about the kings of Israel. And then Paul, of course, introduces it with, Paul, I am a servant, a slave of King Jesus. Sometimes when I read the New Testament, just for my own sake, so I put it in its proper historical and political context, I'll not say Christ and say king instead. And if you do that, it actually changes the flavor of it because we get so used to, you know, when I was little, I thought Christ was his last name. You know, son of Joseph and Mary Christ, they lived over on Elm Street. <laughs> but, it's, but you know what I mean? It just yeah. becomes like, oh, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. No, King Jesus, Emperor Jesus, like, you know, Jesus the King, which again, we're used to that as well. But it does have a different flavor, especially if you're Paul, you're writing a letter to the heart of the Roman Empire under the nose of Caesar, who held the title of Christ, he and he alone. And now you're talking about a different Christ under the nose of Caesar. You're like, this is a pretty dangerous letter. You could see why people would be terrified to read this stuff in public, because this is dangerous. It's dangerous to put your allegiance behind the true king when there's a false king who's fighting for your your, um, adherence, right? So anyway, just it, it bears noting. What a da- I, I, I have a, <laughs> dan- a, da- a dangerous song in my in my mind. Michael Jackson. No, it's a dangerous dangerous, dangerous woman. Um, I don't even. Know. All right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Paul, I'm a servant of, of Christ Jesus, of King Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That gospel, which he promised previously through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. Well, who could he possibly be talking about? Isaiah. Could it be Isaiah? Right? Because the gospel, and again, it's not a a one or the other kind of a thing. I mean, the gospel is slowly being fulfilled in Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. But Hezekiah is not the end of it. It's one step toward the ultimate gospel fulfillment, which is, of course, King Jesus. But these promises are given way back in the time of Isaiah and prior to Isaiah and have been unfolding through time and now revealed to the likes of us, which is pretty profound and humbling to think about. To think mm, about, yeah, the gospel about his son, his true son. Because remember, the prophecy in Isaiah is all about a son. Now, this is the son descended from David, which means descended from Ahaz, quite frankly, according to the flesh, and established. So, literally, I mean, Paul thinks it's important that, yeah, of course, Jesus is descendant from David. He's also a blood descendant of Ahaz, who was a lousy king. But even lousy kings can actually help 
further God's plan of grace. Mm. And that's worth noting here because I think that's in Paul's mind. Are you trying to talk about my pastoring? No. That's good. Thanks, man. Self-deprecating humor. Ah. I'm not going to give into it. I'm not going (laughs) to let you self-deprecate. It is established the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness through the resurrection from the dead, Christ King Jesus our Lord. Through him we have received the grace of apostleship to bring about what? Obedience of faith. This is such a big... This is like... As this far is as the key. F- as far as phrases go, obedience of faith is it, it, uh, hard to communicate to this cul- to us culturally. Well, do you know that the whole book of Romans is phrased by or framed by that term? It no. shows up here in the very first verses, and it shows up in the last verses. The entire book of Romans, the the theological magnum opus of the greatest apostle there ever was, is framed by the concept of obedience. You do what God asks you to do. Mm. This is the whole theme of Isaiah, right? Right. What can't Ahaz do? Be obedient. Paul is saying through the true king, you can be obedient. Mm. You need to be obedient. And what is this obedience about? For the sake of his name among who? The Gentiles, the enemies, the ones who you think are your threats. Right. You need to be obedient because God wants them. Mm. Which again, the tie-ins to the first reading are so profound there. But the idea of obedience is really crucial. Obediere. Mm. That's all I got. Yeah. But it's um, pretty cool. It I is. I mean, the, the ties, this is the thing. I, I the, the first three tie together, I think, so well, but they don't seem very Christmassy. Well, this, I mean, and and the last thing I have to say is, uh, is oh, grace I know, to I got you it. in peace from I, God our Father. I think I just figured it out. Sorry. Oh, fa- say what you're going to say. I was just going to say that this oh is. Oh, my a, gosh. This is a. Oh, I just got. Sorry. I'm okay, really just, excited. Just go. No, no, just no, go, no, just go. Just go. I'm going to sit on it for a second. You say what you're going to say. Okay. <laughs> what were you going to say? Come on. I was just going to say it's addressed to, to both the Greeks and the Jews. That's like, it's in the incorporation of the family of God is what I was actually trying to tie back into. No, it's actually huge because Paul, this is not a greeting that's used in the ancient world. No. Grace to you and peace. And he does it in most of his letters. Grace being the Greek word charis, um, which is not quite uh, the, the, what is it? I, I wish I had my Greek in front of me. Um, grace, charis is really similar to the Greek word that simply means greetings, which is charis something. And they're very related. And then he adds, so you would say greetings to you, which sounds a lot like the Greek word for grace. And then he adds the Jewish greeting, which is shalom. Again, because he's he's in court. It's, it's very beautiful. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we now, keep here going. we go. Yeah. yeah. Okay. How do we do this? So the reading we get is from Matthew um, chapter 1, verse 18. This is the famous scene. It's after, no, the Annunciation's in Luke. This is the, for, for lack of a better way to put it, the Annunciation to Joseph, right? Yeah. So uh, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. Jesus Christ, Jesus the King, came about. This is what Matthew says. When the mother of Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but before they lived together, betrothal, by the way, a little nutshell crash course on betrothal. <laughs> we, we think of betrothal sometimes in the, Christian, in the Christmas story as, as um, basically Jewish engagement, which it's not. And this is actually a very big deal to the story. It's not that they were engaged. I was at a Christmas pageant with little kids the other day, and they actually used the word engagement, which, and I get it because they wanted the kids to understand what this meant, sort of. But betrothal is not engagement. Betrothal means you're married. So in the Jewish tradition, there's two steps of marriage. The first is the betrothal, but once you're betrothed, you are married, but you haven't come together yet. Step two is when you actually come together and you live together as man and wife. Which we, but that's why we would have the technical definition of uh, ratsum non consummatum. Exactly right. 
Ratified but not consummated. Yeah, absolutely. But what that means, I mean, this matter. why does this matter? It matters because when Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant, and he's like, what is going on here? And he decides to divorce her. If you're just engaged, you don't need to get a divorce, right? Right. So this actually shows that they've actually been married. This is a real deal. So they're betrothed, but they don't live together. So step one is complete, but step two is not. And she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, since he was a righteous man, yet unwilling to expose her to shame, literally it says to uncover her, he decided to divorce her quietly. Now, here's the thing. Okay. Matthew, I think, is messing with us a little bit. Because, now, Joseph is a good man. I think he's a merciful man. But to be righteous, at least in the Jewish understanding, there's a very specific meaning to that word. To be righteous means you follow the Jewish law to the letter. You do what it says. And the Jewish law has very harsh things to say about women who get pregnant out of wedlock. Right. So if Joseph is really righteous, he should actually expose her to shame and have her punished because that's what the law asks of him. Joseph is not merely adhering to the letter of the law. He's doing something else. Yeah. Which tells you that what Matthew means by righteousness is being flipped is being flipped a little bit. But it also tells us this. Here's what it tells me. I don't think Joseph actually thinks Mary has done something unseemly. And I know it's, it's we don't know exactly what Joseph's thinking here. He finds out she's pregnant. He knows it wasn't him. What is the conclusion? Well, geez, it was somebody else. But if that's true and if he's righteous, and if he really thinks she's done that, then if he's really righteous, then he should do something about it. Right. Because that's what the law asks of him. Right. But I don't think Joseph thinks that. I think Joseph knows. I think Joseph has insight that something has happened here. I actually think there, there's a theory. It's called the, um, the reverential deference theory. I think that's the technical term for it, which is that, I mean, presumably Mary and Joseph talk. Yeah. I don't think they have no conversation. They don't live together yet, but I'm sure they converse with each other. They are married. And I bet Mary at some point told him about this. I don't think that he just finds out one day and he's like, what? I mean, I bet as soon as the Annunciation happened, I don't know this for sure, but I bet as soon as the Annunciation happened, who's the first person that Mary talks to? She probably goes to Joseph. Well, yeah, I mean, because... I mean, I hope she does. Because your newly married wife has uh, is, is, a, is announced to be pregnant and goes to the hill country for three months? Yeah, I think she tells him first. Yeah, she would have and to And I think have. she trusts him because she loves him. I mean, I, I, I hope for that. I hope in that idea. Yes. And I bet Joseph, and again, I'm speculating, but I bet Joseph believes her. And I think the reason that Joseph, I think, this is a theory, I think the reason that Joseph wants to divorce her quietly is because he realizes that what she said is true, that God's Holy Spirit really is at work here. And if that's actually true, I am not worthy to be here. Mm. Sort of what Elizabeth says. How is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? I can't raise the Lord. I am not the one for this. This is too much. I am too lowly. I am too small. I think that's why he wants to divorce her, not because he thinks she's done something bad, but because he has the insight to realize what God has done. And he says, that's too much. That's why the angel comes to him. Mm. That's why the angel literally comforts him. He's not ticked off. He's not mad. He is so awed by what God has done. He thinks he can't be a part of it. The angel says, no, don't be afraid. Be not afraid to take Mary into your home. For she is, it's through the Holy Spirit that she's with the child, and this child has been conceived. I really, I think Joseph knows the Blessed Mother well enough to know she couldn't have done this. She wouldn't have been unfaithful. That's no. not her. But here's the catch. Here's what, I, here's what I thought of when we were talking about the second reading. Okay. What does this have to do with anything? Well, 
the second reading points out it matters to St. Paul and certainly the Christian tradition that Jesus is descendant from David and all of David's um, descendants through the flesh, through the bloodline. That's important. Who is Joseph? Joseph is the descendant of, of not Ahaz. only David, but Ahaz and Hezekiah. What is being asked of King Joseph right here? To trust. What did, no, well, yes, but what did, what did Paul say in Romans our faith hinges upon? Obedience of Obedience faith. of faith. What could Ahaz, the son of David, not do? Be Follow obedient. Follow through and be in obedience. What is King Joseph, the descendant of Ahaz, being asked to do? Be obedient. To be obedient. What is King Joseph faithful in? Mm. Obedience. With regard to what? The son that's going to come from his line. Did you just call him King Joseph? I called him King Joseph. Dude, that's bold. Which, it's a pretty bold thing to say, but he is a Davidic son. Yeah. He is the heir to the throne, and his son is King Jesus. I, I, it's a bold thing to say, but I mean, think about that for a second. Just... I don't know. There's something about even using that. I've never, I've never said that before, and I'm yeah. saying it on air. Yeah. But it's kind of, it, it's kind of interesting. It is. King Joseph asked for obedience in regard to what? A virgin who's going to bear a son whose name is Emmanuel. He is the anti Ahaz. He is the one that sees what. If my theory is correct, it's not my theory. But if that theory of the reverential deference is correct, he sees a threat that he doesn't know how to deal with, that he wants to find a way out of, to find an alternative plan. And the Lord comes and says, now here's your sign. He didn't ask for a sign, but he got it. What's the sign? An angel named Gabriel who tells him about the virgin who is having a son named Emmanuel. He is literally the antithesis of the first reading. With a threat, being told to fear not, seeking another option, but is obedient and bearing the son called Emmanuel. Wow. This is maybe why the church has chosen to put these particular readings together. Ooh. What do you think? I like it. It's kind of cool, isn't I it? I think it's actually a really beautiful tie-in. And, and like you know a, what did it for me? Is Paul, me. that little word, Paul pointing out that he was descended from David by the flesh. Like, just to drill it in, he wants to make sure you know uh. this is a family line. Which, of course, Joseph is part of. Yes. I don't know. It's interesting. I uh, I think Joseph is the anti. I think that I think it is the direct opposite of the first reading. It yeah. is the answer. It's not the opposite. It's the answer to the first reading. Dude, that's just beautiful. It's kind of cool. Well, I don't think we could say much more than just relish in the 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 gift of that insight and hot dog and and being able to be willing to come we, on. That was hilarious. <laughs> you said let's relish, and I said hot dog. Oh, I'm trying to be man, funny too. I can the, be funny too. I was having a hard funny time catching guy. up. Nice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, we must turn stuff. Oh man! All right, just keep uh, just peeling back the onions on this. It's like <laughs> making me cry. All right. Hey, um, happy uh, happy Fourth Sunday of Advent, indeed. And uh, we will tune back in for you uh, with a little Christmas action. You better believe it. Hey, we'll see you then. God bless you. Bye bye. Bye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.